It's time for Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games Podcast. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 208. I'm Matt Hackett. I'm Jeff Blair. Two new patrons. Welcome, Tim. Thanks Two. for joining us. Two. Tim, good for being here. We also have Chris. Uh, Chris left a lovely comment on the Matt Seta episode. Very heartfelt, and it means a lot to me. Uh, Thank you so much for your generosity, and thanks for joining us. You too can join us at patreon.com slash lostdecadegames. Awesome. Thank you guys very much. So, uh, this is the last week of January, which is the January jam. It's like, uh, you know, it ends on a Tuesday, which is kind of nice. Oh, that is. We can podcast about the ending. So, next week's show. That's cool. How is your thing coming? Uh, it's coming. It's coming. I haven't uh, made a whole lot of progress in the last couple of days. You know, it kind of comes in spurts. Oh yeah, yeah. With this kind of stuff, um, you know, because like I got busy at work, and so I couldn't what? really justify slacking off as much. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> Which is unfortunate because I really want to slack off, and I really want to work on my January <laughs> game more. How dare you have good work ethics, sir? But it's a travesty. Uh, yeah, I did get uh, projectiles into the game. Ooh. So now you can uh, shoot, and it shoots a little fireball, and it'll hit the wall, and it'll go away. Or if it hits an enemy, it'll do damage and go away. And yeah, that's about it. Is there anything <laughs> more simple. satisfying than shooting projectiles in a first-person shooter? Especially no. the kind, because yours is like the plasma gun in Doom, where you can see these big, fat projectiles, like, it just disappear in the distance. Yeah. So satisfying. So I kind of decided just to go that route, right? Because I was starting to mull it over. You know, like we talked about um, either offline or on the previous cast, or I don't remember. Both, likely. <laughs> you say a lot of things. And, you know. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> you know, we talked about how uh, there's like a deep ocean of <laughs> kind of projectile attacks that, that we could do, right? Like, Oh, man, yeah. Or not even projectile, right? Like I was thinking about a melee, right? You're like kind of hexen or heretic style. You right. know, you're running around with a... A sword or whatever and like you can see a swing animation and you know there's like a hitbox like we know how to do that stuff sure um <clears throat> but then you know we were talking about how it's a jam game and it's really better off if you just kind of make it simple yes. um and so i decided to go the projectile route one because uh it's something that i've done before and two it's you know harmonizes well with the other existing game mechanics right like yeah i already have code that says like hey there's a thing at you know x y and it's so big around or whatever and you know draw it like this and uh that fits a lot better than something like you know maybe like the chain gun in doom right where like you don't really see individual projectiles it's more like you can see the enemy getting hit by stuff Right. Yeah, my my understanding in Doom, the Doom games, is the bullets, so the the pistol, and then also the chain gun. I don't think that they actually create projectiles that go through the world. I mean, Tiger Hat on. I, I did investigate the engine a little bit, and I messed around with ray casters, as I talked about before. But my understanding is it just will do the math. It'll just draw a line from here to there. Like I don't think you can dodge a bullet in Doom. I think it's instant. Right. Interesting. It's not the Matrix, Matt. <laughs> Agent Smith can dodge the bullets. No one else. Maybe yes. uh, maybe Neo, I guess. Yeah. Maybe. Anyway, <laughs> back to Anyways, yeah. So I decided to use you know just like that kind of plasma gun style projectile. Yeah. Um, because it's easy and it works with the rest of the code and the collision is easy and I don't have to do any like you know kind of one off stuff like okay when you shoot the gun you know do a ray cast find an enemy if they're you know blah 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 get hit and you know it's like outside <laughs> all the rest of the the code that I already have. Yeah. So 
And Melee just has more moving parts because to make it feel good, you need to have the animation synced up with it. You need to have uh, the player stop usually or at least slow down or something. You need to have the wind up. You need to have the, you know, the release, the swing of the sword and the impact. You have to time everything together and you got to make all that feel good. Whereas with uh, like a plasma gun, you spawn the projectile, you shoot it out into the world. And the very first thing you do, the very first step, it already feels good. Yeah. Much less work. And I think I'm going to skin it as a wand. So I'm just going to draw like a, a stick. Right. Nice. And put it in the viewport and like bob <laughs> it up and down, you know, Excellent. and then when you fire, maybe like, you know, just give it like one alternate frame of animation where it's like, you know, here's idle wand and here's like pointed wand. The, yeah. The wand has like a, like the tip is shiny, like it's shooting something or oh, magic. Yeah. See, it's, yeah. It's, this is why yeah. you do the polish, Matt. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's all the only part I'm any good at. <laughs> Game, this game design's terrible, but look at all these sparkly particles everywhere. So pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that's that's probably what I'm gonna do. So there's keys and doors. There's monsters. There's health. There's the shooting. Um, I think I just need enemy behavior. Um, and then I just need to design some levels. That's that, all. That show all those things off. Just do it. Why yeah. isn't that done yet? I mean. Design the enemy behavior. That's all Soul Thief needs, for example. Well, so one of the reasons I haven't made a lot of progress on that front right now is because I'm letting it percolate. Because, you know, I think that this is one of those areas where we tend to fall into the content trap, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, especially with games like Soul Thief and stuff where we're like, you know, we just start making enemy behavior and, like, it always ends up way too complicated and, like, not really scalable, you know? The scalable thing is because we've built many times like a uh, like a small amount of content, but then when it needs to be two, three, four times that amount, that's when we die on the content mountain, right? <laughs> content mountain, yeah. <laughs> Climbing, ah, water, <laughs> help me. Um, so I was kind of thinking about trying to go like more of the Doom route, right? Where I, I was like looking up the Doom AI algorithms and stuff, mm. and <clears throat> you know, essentially they just have like one AI behavior to speak of, which is that you know. If, you know, if you see the player, like, move towards them, and uh, if you have a melee attack and you're within melee range, use that. Otherwise, use a ranged attack. Or if you don't have a melee attack, you know, move away a little bit and then attack again or something. You know, it's like, but you can kind of see how, like, they, uh, they AI, they generally share the same behaviors, right? Like, even even the pinky things and the the fireball-throwing demons probably share the same general behavior, right? It's just that the pink demons you know they have a melee attack and so their eye says like hey i'm not in range yet so keep keep going forward until i'm there right and then the imps might just have a threshold where they're like look there's no reason for me to get closer to you than you know n units or whatever they use so i'm just not going to move forward anymore i'm going to stand here at a distance and throw fireballs at you like a jerk yeah so yeah. i i do want to have a jerk fireball throwing monster too because um, because that already exists in the game. Like the, f- the player can throw fireballs right now. So, um, it's pretty easy to add a monster that throws fireballs. So I think it's going to be my first enemy. Well, probably not my first, maybe my second. The first one will probably be something that just exists and moves around. And if you touch it, it'll do damage to you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like a bat or something. Body collision. Yes. Body collision. Although I don't think I'm going to do anything weird with like knockback or any of that stuff. Knockback's cool. That is a polish part of game design, I guess. I mean, uh, you know, w- with a good knockback, especially in something like Spelunky, where um, like the shotgun knocks you back, 
you know, that can shove you into spikes and kill you. You know, like there are some really interesting game design implications there. But it's also where like, you know, the the recoil on a shotgun feels great, you know. So it's like there's yeah. polish, there's game design. It's um that's where I'm happiest working on stuff like that, I think. So I would work on knockback if I were you, but I recognize that that's like a much later like a, honestly that's a could later, right? Yeah. So although it kind of occurred to me that you know, we've talked about how we don't really love body collision a lot of times like I feel like maybe this is a, another kind of instance where body collision isn't that great just because of the perspective. You know, it might be better yeah. if, you know, when you got close to a bat, you know, you didn't take damage the second you entered their radius, right? Um, due to a collision, it'd be more interesting maybe if like, you know, once you entered their radius, they stop for like some amount of time and then they have an animation where it looks like they're going to attack and then they do it and they spawn like an attack entity, you know, in front of them. And so during that entire time, like you have an opportunity to respond. Better. I do think that's a lot better in pretty much every category. I think the only uh, difficult part is like, you know, facing, right? Like where does the attack go? It should probably be like an instant thing, I guess. Like they have a wind up. So like if you're within range, they detect you, they show an animation. And then if you're still in range at the end of the, you know, waiting period, you just take damage. Like they just say, say damage. So, um, because then I can kind of avoid like the weird scenarios with like, you know, oh, you know, do they spawn the attack hazard, you know, in front of them, like how they're facing, but that doesn't always sync up with the way they're facing in the game, right? Because if you like circle strafe around the bat, you know, because it's drawn in a single sprite uh, as a billboard, you know, the bat's facing in the world is completely decoupled from its facing visually so you are trying to have all your enemies look good as billboards right like you don't want to draw all the perspectives yes no so no. the facing then is something you might want to kind of uh ignore yes. what i'm picturing in my mind is say a blowfish right and it's the kind of thing where like if let's say you're swimming around like you're snorkeling or something you see a blowfish you can like touch it with your hand push it out of the way it's not gonna hurt you or anything right but if the the uh, blowfish is going to puff up and turn all spiky, right? Like you could see there might be like a like a message, right? Some feedback. The fish is about to do that. Like its eyes get big and it starts to shiver or something. Right. And then choof, these spikes come out. And what I like about that is it's, you know, uh, omnidirectional. It's not like it's shooting, you know, a, a forked tongue out or it's biting with its mouth just right in front of it. It's more of just a, a radius thing. Like if you're within a certain distance uh, of the blowfish, you're going to get spiked. Yeah. So it could be something like that, just to simplify it, you know. So it really is just like a. It's like the same thing as body damage, except instead of actually doing body damage, you'd be dropping a hazard on the bat that kind of just circles around it. Yeah. So that's kind of like what I was thinking, except for, um, I would just do instant damage. Like I, I think I might forego the dropping of an entity. And just so say, you would just turn on body damage on the bat. No, I, I wouldn't even turn it on. I would just have a routine that says, you know, um basically like wind up right yeah 500 milliseconds worn time and display some different frame of like the bat like getting ready to bite and then when that duration is gone if the player is still within x radius like deal 10 damage or whatever one damage gotcha yeah and then you know then go back into the next or like you know i'm gonna use like a state machine to to do the behaviors i was about to ask that yeah so it'll be like you know there'll be like a moving state and then there'll be a you know Am I at the player? If yes, then it's like wind up state. And then the next state is deal damage to the player if they're still in range. Um, otherwise, reset. 
then right. you know if you did like i guess you just reset even if you did damage or didn't do damage right yeah <clears throat> so i kind of like that because it gives you a little bit of an opportunity like you can turn around and see a bat and it's like it's got its fangs up and it's like about to bite you and you could back away within 500 milliseconds or whatever it happens to be and you won't take damage right i like that kind of behavior because it gives the player control over the monsters right so like let's say the bat is on a trajectory where it's moving in a direction and you don't want it to end up where it's going right if you walk up and you antagonize the bat the bat will stop right it'll delay and then it'll bite and then i'll take some time then like when it returns to its previous action it could continue in the line it was at or it might change its direction right but either way you can prevent it from going where you don't want it yeah exactly i like that so so i think that that's yeah i'm gonna remove the body collision i've decided just now and after this talk. just now <laughs> i well, love you know, it that's a sort of pure game design right there yeah i was sort of on the fence you know but uh at least for this like for those kinds of monsters right like uh it's just like there's a like a bat running into you you know it's like it's not really gonna hurt yeah um and i do like like the game mechanic you know it feels like more like a game right when there's this like system to it right it's like move pause wind up attack and uh, like you were saying, you can manipulate that system to your, um, you know, to your benefit. Uh, whereas if it's just like, hey, I bounce around the room, and if you touch me, I do damage, it's a lot more shallow. Yeah. You know, like spikes, you hit them or you don't, and they sit there, and it's kind of uninteresting otherwise, you know? Yeah. But basically, the more tools you give the player, the better. And the ability to antagonize a bat or any other monster and pause them and manipulate uh, their positioning and stuff, that's all, that's all good stuff. I should do static spikes, though, just because, like, that is an interesting... Like, it's a game piece that already exists in the world, like the body damage collision. And um, I could easily just draw, like, some spikes that look like they're coming out from the floor and then just put those entities, you know, in certain rooms, like we do in Soul Thief and stuff. And, like, that, you know, kind of complements the existing part of the game, which is, like, move around the world and, you know, you can't hit walls, but you could hit this thing, but it'll hurt you, right? True. I think with spikes, the, the only times I've really found them interesting are when, I guess there's only really two scenarios. One would be it limits your space, but it's in a softer way than just here's a hard wall, right? Uh, because say for like a, a challenging boss in a, like a wizard lizard type game, you've got a room to be in with the boss and you want to keep your distance. And if it's just like a hard limit, then you've got this small room with no walls where you can go anywhere. You could have a little bit of a bigger room, but you could have the same amount of space uh, blocked out, but with spikes instead, right? So, like, if the boss is charging you, and you might even know, like, because you played the game before, you know the boss deals more body damage than the spikes are going to deal to you, right? So the boss is charging you, and you can, like, oh, crap, I'm going to walk on these spikes strategically really quick because I'll take less damage from the spikes, that kind of a thing. Uh, Another way would be, like, um, if you want to have the player go through a path, you know, like, we've done that in a Wizard Lizard where it's, like, uh, like a plus shape will be uh, through this room. So you want to like, you know, walk in the middle and avoid the spikes. Um, but I found that like when the spikes were in like a wizard lizard, right? When they were just kind of thrown around, I didn't like them at all. And I know that's a totally different game design, right? Because like AWL1, as we talked about before, has that problem where like a zombie can just walk through spikes stupidly. Yeah. Right. So they really are just like a pain in your ass. Like sometimes you'll just, oh, crap, I walked on those spikes. And you feel so dumb, you know, because it's so brittle. There, there's like, you just, you did it. Nothing shoved you in there necessarily. Like you just walked into those and you feel dumb. 
The the senso spikes, I think, are a lot more interesting because they represent the same thing in the game, which is you're telling the player, here's an area that you don't want to occupy with your player's body, right? But they have just more, like they're softer, right? They have more padding. And it's kind of just objectively to me, in most scenarios, more interesting because it accomplishes the same thing, but you can manipulate it. You know, you, you could step on it real quick and step off and then you trigger the spikes. And then when they go back in, you might have more time and then you can occupy that space freely, right? The right. same kind of idea as that, you know, I want to trigger this bat to make it do what I want instead of what it was going to be doing. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I guess I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I think like static spikes... Um, I think they have to be used very cautiously because they're they're not that fun for the player. I think it's the kind of thing that, you know, I definitely, I always add them to my games. They're an indie game sim. Like, I add them because they're easy and because they're content and because they're kind of expected. But I don't really think that they are uh, the best, like, game entities, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I like the idea of the toggle spikes because they're, you know... Game design or like game programming wise, they're not much harder to make, right? Right. Especially when you know you have a finite state machine already for some other purposes, right? It just becomes, yeah. you know, be in non collidable state for 500 milliseconds and then be in collidable state for however long, right. or, you know, whatever. Um, so it's really just like an easy toggle of damage or not, and then you know, have a change of a sprite. Nice. So I might do that. Um, another thing I was thinking that kind of harmonizes well with the existing game pieces is like, have you ever seen those games? I think like um, Grimrock had this. I know Delver has it, but it's like these like kind of gargoyle faces on the wall. Mm-hmm. And like every so often they'll shoot a fireball just kind of across the room. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've already got fireballs. I've got entities. It's like I could very easily just have, you know, basically have like a wall tile that looks like the gargoyle face. Same, same thing I do with the doors, right? have a wild wall tile that looks like a gargoyle face and then put an invisible entity right on top of it that just spawns a um <clears throat> spawns a projectile you know on some kind of timer kind of reminds like, me of the sewer spouts in a wizard lizard yeah basically same idea right sticks on the wall and like on an interval it'll just start spewing out poison for like a second or, or a few and then it stops and rinse and repeat or i could do a um arrow trap too it's type of situation right where it's like oh, yeah. uh it just sits there until you cross the threshold and it shoots at you and then, you know, has one charge and it's done. I mean, maybe those, that actually might be a really uh, easy way to kind of finish up the January, you know, to some degree of done, right? Is, is to kind of go the trap route more and make it like, here's a little dungeon crawl with traps. Like it's got the gargoyle shooting fireballs on an interval. Maybe it's got the arrow trap shooting on, you know, some kind of detection. It's got um, maybe like toggle spikes. So they could even be visualized as like a little flame spurt. Yeah. Um, that might be an easier way to finish because then I don't really have to worry about like, okay, the enemy looks for the player and then, you know, uses a star <laughs> or whatever to figure out what the best path to get there is. And then it moves all these waypoints and has to, you know, recalculate the player's position when the player moves and, you know, blah, yeah. blah, blah. So do you remember Treasure Goblin? Nope. <laughs> Surprisingly nope. fun, right? Yeah. So, okay, th- for those that don't remember, I'm sure we've talked about the podcast, but it's been a long time, and the game is online, but but in a broken state. It- it's basically a side-scoring platformer that plays a lot like like a picture of bad HTML5 version of Spelunky, okay? <laughs> but there's nothing in the game except uh, coins, basically treasure, right? Like you, you have stuff you want to collect, and there are spikes to avoid. That's it. And the game kind of generates these little levels for you, and you jump around, and like the first couple levels are really easy, and then once you get to like level four or five, it starts getting... Very hard, where almost every jump you do is like, you need to get it perfect or you're dead. Mm -hmm. And that game had 
uh, long legs, I think, gameplay-wise. I found myself playing it just for fun because it was really just like throw you in the deep end of a like a typical side-scoring platformer, you know? Yeah. And the only real reason that game worked is because it, it dodged certain problems like combat. You know, it didn't have a whip. There weren't monsters that would run over to you and look for you and have their own behaviors and stuff. And I also kind of dodged that problem in Indie Game Sim because I had thought about, and actually I had in the game at one point, there were weapon pickups. But the thing is, is that, as you know, is a deep ocean, you know, and like, I don't think the game would be done right now if I aggressively pursued the combat. It definitely would not be very good combat. You know, I've talked before about how I think Splunky is a spectacular game, but the combat's pretty weak, you know, and with Indie Game Sim being a, a decent game, I guess, right? Like the combat would, <clears throat> would be kind of bad. Honestly, like if because I didn't have enough time to make it good, you know, right. And I think that the strength of if either if either of those games have strengths, it's that they f- just focused on the basic fundamentals, you know, like avoiding stuff and jumping and moving. Really, both games are just all about guiding your body through space. And that's it. And there's a lot of uh, really fun gameplay there, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess what I'm picturing in my head is maybe you could have like uh, the equivalent of, say, um, Indiana Jones. Right, like him going through the Temple of Doom or whatever. Like, yeah, he might whip his uh, pull his whip out once in a while, right? But you know, when I picture the first movie, it's really just like, okay, walk over here, avoid these spikes, like duck, you know, like don't walk there, uh, avoid the boulder, like swap these two things. You know, it's all like it's not combat related, but it's all still really interesting and it feels deadly and challenging, right? Mm-hmm. Anyhow, yeah, that's pretty good. I like that idea. I feel like the combat can come later. I mean, I love the combat, and it's it is the sexiest, easily the most fun thing to work on. Like I know the moment you got those bullets working, you were just like, "Yeah!" Oh man, yeah, I spent yeah. like a whole bunch of time just running around my levels, like shooting at shooting nothing, bullets. shooting at walls. <laughs> yeah, bam, 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 bam. you know, like tuning the cooldown so that it's like, you know, it feels really nice. Yeah, but like giving that good meaning and making that tight and feel good is. Uh, an ocean of work. Um, yes, that's true. Not that you can't do it. I just think, you know, I think you would, I don't know. I, I would work towards it is what I'm trying to say. I don't, I don't want to curb your creativity here, sir. Yeah, Matt. Stop trying to put me in a box. <laughs> I'm not going to fit in your perfect Blair box, Matt. Matt. Yeah. Um, well, you know, <clears throat> to be fair, there's only a week left in January, so. That's true. Yeah. How so much you're hoping to stuff, have like a. Yeah. Yeah, if you want like a nice, you know, concise experience, then I think that would be your quickest path to that, right? It's like, here's some spikes, here's, you know, hit a button, and you turn off these spikes, and here's a key, and open the door, and, you know, beware of the traps, and there you go. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Maybe it'll be like a, um, ooh, ooh, I just had had an idea. Ooh, a headache with pictures. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What if it's like uh, this kind of game where you go down like several levels, right? It's like level one, two, three. And then you find like the treasure at the end. And then once you pick up the treasure, like some kind of game condition changes where everything is more hazardous or there's more traps or something. And you oh, look, that's soft limit? From B to A. Yeah. Not really like a soft limit, more like, you know, just add some, like maybe like a, like boulders falling, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the temple is self collapsing or something. Yeah, yeah. And you have to get, you know, you have to get. You already went A to B. Now you have to go B to A, but you have to do it within, you know, some kind of time period. This sounds you way would... too much for a week, but anyway. <laughs> the original Rogue and, and many roguelikes have followed were A to B and B to A. And I, I don't think the original Rogue had it, but I know many roguelikes have introduced that where when you go back, 
from B to A, then something has changed. Like now all the monsters you've killed come back as stronger zombies or something along those lines. Ooh, yeah. Zombies. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Reintroducing combat. No. Back out. Back away. Back away. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. See, this is like the game design f- trap, right? Is that I already have the players shooting projectiles. And so if I don't have things for them to kill, I have to cut that because it'll be like, why are you just, why, do, why can I shoot fireballs? Yeah. And I don't want to cut it, Matt, because my baby. That's so funny. Well, what about, what if you're shooting hearts and you're having monsters fall in love with you and then they follow you around, you can have them step on pressure plates for you? Yes, that sounds like a week long <laughs> thing. <laughs> or what if, what, okay, portal. You're shooting projectiles, but they're just like portal beams. Just make portal in a ray casting engine. A yes. <laughs> Get to it. What are you, why are you podcasting? Go work on your portal raycaster. I hate you, Matt. Good God. Can you imagine a portal raycaster? It's built on like the Duke Nukem 3D engine where you can look up and down, but it's all skewed and looks horrible. And you're messing with portal like, ah, uh, it's possible, but it would be wonky. Yeah. Well, I could do a, I could do a portal where... You know, you uh, you could just put it on the walls. I mean, it's not undoable in the Raycaster. <laughs> it's not undoable. Can you also draw? No, okay, what? No, uh, mi- no. <laughs> no, I know where you're going, and the answer is no. There are mirrors in Duke Nukem 3D. Yeah, I'm sure that there are. I'm just saying. <laughs> I can't believe you don't want to implement that, Jeff. It would only take years off your life. Oh man. Well, I mean, theoretically. It wouldn't be that difficult, right? Because all you'd do is you'd take the portal, right? Mm-hmm. And you'd find its position, and then you'd just run the same ray casting algorithm um, onto a cached texture or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you'd just, you know, use a mask to draw that like little oval or whatever to the screen where it needs to be. Oh, uh, that, I mean, Tiger Hat on, I haven't done it, but that sounds uh, <laughs> a little naive, sir. <laughs> I th- well, I, I see th- what you're saying. <laughs> that sounds that sounds really hard. Well, conceptually, I'm just saying conceptually, it's the hard part is done, which is that you, you have know, the raycasting engine. You have like the you have the raycasting engine. The raycasting yeah, yeah. engine can draw anything from any point in the level. Like it doesn't have to be where the player is, right? Like I could just say, "Hey, raycaster, draw the scene as if I were at X, Y, blah, blah, blah. I'm facing this direction." Right. right. <clears throat> so I mean, all the pieces are there. Obviously, yeah. like the devil's in the details, but. Hmm. Man, I just pictured something where like there could be a, a like a it's a mirror that you're looking at, right? And what we're talking about would basically be the mirror wants to just draw you. It draws it draws your character looking at the screen or the mirror or whatever, right? And then it's got like your background rendered on there as well, right? Like that's what I think would be really hard to do, especially given the perspective and the ang- angle differences and everything. But I was just picturing like that could be a mechanic is like if you could see th- you're looking at a wall or a mirror, right? And what that is looking through the eyes of a monster, it's like in a different part of the level. That sounds right. cool to me. I don't. I have no idea where that's going. I don't Let's know, just throw um, a bunch of ideas and see what <laughs> sticks. <laughs> oh, well, I kind of. I want to see what that looks like now, though. I want to see like a render of your game world put into a texture and plastered onto a wall. I just want to see because I, I I can picture it, but I can't picture what the problems would be and why it would. I'm sure it would look wonky, but I can't picture why it would look wonky. You know what else I could do? Uh kind of like in along the similar lines but maybe way easier is portals not like portal portals but like teleporters oh that's yeah that's easy you could probably have that done like five minutes yeah just put uh 
you know, like a purple one or a blue one, right? And then like, that would be really interesting, especially with curated levels, right? Like I could have um, a level design, right? Where there's a room that you can only get to with a portal, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that because of the perspective, that would actually work out a lot better too. It would be a lot more interesting um, because you can see less of what's going on, right? And yeah. like something that we always like, one of the reasons that um, Wizards Lizard portals like were never that great, or I guess Soul Thief portals, um, is like they all exist in the same room, right? Right. And so it's cool. You know, there's some shenanigans that happen with things that kind of pop through portals and like you have to use them and you have to pay a little bit of attention. Like, oh, I want to go to the left side of the room where there's a green portal. So I need to get to the green portal and this, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but in the first person perspective and especially in a curated level and in a level that's large, right? Like my levels aren't room based. They're just kind of like, here's a level. And, you know, there's some number of walls and some number of like, it's kind of like a Spelunky in a sense, right? Like there's like a four by four grid of rooms right. or whatever. It's actually a six by six grid. Anyways, a six by six grid of rooms. <laughs> and uh, the rooms are defined individually. Like I, when I'm making little tiles and stuff, I place the rooms and then I have like a meta map that says, you know, room A, B, C is here or whatever. Um, but yeah, that would be a lot cooler for portals and things because then I could have little like, uh, you know, like an isolated corridor. That's mm -hmm. that you can't get to otherwise, but you can teleport to. That sounds fun. You're right. I mean, when you teleport in a first-person shooter, sometimes you don't know where you are. It's very discombobulating, right? But a lot of times in a 2D game, a lot of them will do this too. Like when you teleport, uh, like in our games, it's usually instantaneous because that's easy. But in other games, you'll teleport, right? And like, whoop, the, the camera will like move the 2D map. It'll scroll to where you're going to be and then pop you up there, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's... Good, especially if, you've, if you're, like, I don't know, like maybe in a Zelda game where you really don't want to confuse your player too much, you know, and be like, hey, good luck in this really complicated puzzle dungeon. Now you have no idea where you are. You know, like sometimes you want that. But I think that's a cool mechanic, I guess you'd call it, like in Doom, because there's sometimes you get on a portal, you have no idea where you are. You have to like resituate, you know, and sometimes the vantage point that you have now is crazy. Like you, you might be able to see where you teleported from, right? Like from a to be but when you get to be you're like whoa where am i because you're like you know 50 feet up or something yeah and that feeling is is surprising and and it feels good right it feels fresh like whoa i'm in a new place like let's look around let's figure out what's going on and you have this conal view right so it's like right immediately you feel in danger because you're like you know part of playing a first person shooter right is sort of having this like uh rear eyesight essentially right where you kind of remember what the room you're in looks like you know, you're like, okay, my back's to a wall. You know, I'm in front of a pillar. And so, like, if I need to, like, strafe or whatever backwards, I can get behind this pill pillar and have, you know, shelter or yeah. whatever. Um, but as soon as you teleport into a new area, you can only see what's in front of you. And, like, you could have your back to a wall. Your back could be to a pit. Your back could be to a monster. Like, you have no idea. Right. Yeah, an interesting way of thinking about it is, let's say, you know, thinking about a Doom game in a first-person perspective, right? Like, let's say you're playing Legend of Zelda, uh, Link to the Past, right? That yes. game looked like normal, except your cone of vision. Like, picture that. You, whatever direction you're facing has this cone where you can see stuff within it. Kind of so like, like the Raycaster would be doing. And everything else is black. So kind of like black. The, the caves with the flashlight type thing going on. Exactly. But that would be all you ever get to see. Yeah. And that's a really weird way of thinking about it. Because, you know, those cave levels feel very claustrophobic and limiting. And, like, you're not given enough information. You take damage from easy monsters like bats. And you fall in pits that are just standing there right in front of you. And you're like, oh, man, this is really hard, you know? That's a first-person shooter or a first-person game. You know, that's the perspective that you're given. That's all the information you have when you're playing a game like that. Yeah. 
interesting happening. stuff. Yeah. Here we are, 2D developers uh, slowly climbing our way into 3D and being like, ooh, look at all this shiny. <laughs> and it's even well, fake 3D. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> it's faux 3D. Someday we'll we'll get really into 3D, like we're using Unity, and we're like, oh my god, 3D, it's blowing my mind. And then people will be like, where have you guys been for the last yeah. 20 years? And we're like, what? What? Speaking of awesome 3D, I meant to mention this earlier, uh, with the January stuff, shout out to I Slip Away slash Watch Your Step slash J on Twitter. Many names. This is one of the reasons I get confused sometimes. <laughs> Uh, Jay put together a really sick 3D Raga model. It looks so good. And his tongue comes out. Nice. He and he blinks. his little lizard toe. He blinks. Amazing. Yeah, very cool. Very impressed. Uh, I was checking out uh, Jay's Twitter and, um, man, just so much cool 3D stuff. There's also like this really slick, very quick, like um, BB-8. I don't even know what you call it, like a little demo thingy. Like here's a BB-8 model that's animated, you know? Hmm. Just so many nice little bite-sized, like... Look how good I am at 3D stuff. Little little nuggets. Awesome stuff. Excellent Very work. Cool. Yeah. So next section of today's podcast, we're going to do a Q&A. Q&A. Yeah, these are uh, questions from Andre. Uh, I think we're going to start off with a little bit of talk about game testing. Game testing. So play testing. So um, we're going to do it this way because this is much more in my wheelhouse. Uh, my wife is a user researcher, so she runs play tests for a living among other things. And then also uh, me having launched a new game sim uh, last month, uh, playtesting is kind of fresh on my mind. So I thought a good way to approach these questions. So uh, let's get it started. How question early... number one. Yeah, question number one. <laughs> Lightning round. No. <laughs> Quick. Uh, how early in development of your game do you start to play test? Good question. So uh, I think the earlier the better. And what that means is the moment you have a game loop, I think it's a good time to start testing. I don't necessarily think it's uh, like you can if you just have like your micro mechanics in place, right? Like, let's say you're making like let's say you're making a Mega Man game, so you got to run and jump, right? You're running and you're jumping, and you know you as the game designer and the game developer, you're gonna make that feel good, make it feel tight. It's good to get feedback on that, <clears throat> but at an early stage in the game, you're gonna get uh, wild feedback because people don't know what your game is yet, right? When you all you have is the micro, it's almost like a too narrow vision of the game so the feedback i think is um it's kind of all over the map some people might be like oh cool you should add you know dragons or add this huge you know cannon or add axes you can swing because they don't see the vision of your game yet necessarily right right um, so anyway like you have to take it with more of a grain of salt than you would otherwise i think you do yeah like and the closer you get to the finish line the more solidified everything is and the feedback will be less crazy you know because people will understand more what your game is and stop um suggesting things that are way out in left field right so for that reason, I think it's best to start your play test when you've got like a full game loop. So in the case of something like Mega Man, you've got, you know, the equivalent of um, like a first level where you can run and jump and a couple of monsters to fight and then you finish it and you get an upgrade and you can go to another one and rinse, repeat. So like just like a, a game loop there. And it can be very loose. It can be very prototypey. Um, here's a term I found out recently. Uh, I read this article forever ago called uh, a game studio culture dictionary. I just posted this on Game Dev Treasure. GameDevTreasure.com, check it out. Uh, I post articles and videos there from other people that are uh, that I want to promote that I think are great. Uh, gray box is a term that came up there. And this is something we use all the time when we talk about, oh, I'm just going to make a game with squares or with red outlines or, you know, with no graphics, right? Yeah. 
that's called gray boxing apparently in the AAA scene because you know they were they all work in 3D and so they've got all these environments uh, but nothing's textured you know and and the models that are there aren't like necessarily rigged or animated right so it's a gray box you're just walking around like you know n- nothing's been painted right i think that's really useful i think i think great like when you're in the gray box stage um you should be play testing at least a little bit just to see what your problems are before you move forward with the polishing the texturing and all that stuff right like you want to know if, you, if you've got a dud in your hand and if something needs to be changed drastically before you commit further to it yeah i think it's kind of just like the general software adage right of like uh building the minimum viable, pro- viable product and making sure that your user base responds well to it yeah I, right. yeah definitely yeah like uh unless you're like one of these great designers who just kind of go into a hole for five years and come out with like a masterpiece yeah i don't think that happens though you know like they're they're, they're either using themselves somebody, right? yeah they're testing with somebody they're getting advice from from friends and you know family and stuff and and they're also um, i think some people are just very good at treating themselves as a detached player you know, like they almost have these split personalities where they can be like, here's me as the developer. And then today I'm going to play the game as a player and I'm going to, you know, be really honest and harsh. And that works well. Whereas some people, you know, it's more like they get into a vacuum and the stuff they make suffers because it doesn't have uh, much more outside feedback. You know, yeah, I just I definitely think that some people are just better um, inherently at doing that. That is true. So uh, next question. How many people usually play test your game before it's released? <laughs> Good question. Uh, so for us, from our perspective, like especially with indie game sim, th- these are single player experiences, you know. <clears throat> and I think that let's say with a game like Hots, which is a five on five team fight, right? Uh, that for that kind of a game, like you would probably want to get hundreds of people playing, right? Because every single game has at least ten people in it. So with something like indie game sim, it being a single player game, I don't think you need hundreds of people necessarily, but it's certainly great to get those data points if you can. Uh, what I usually shoot for is like a handful um, of people like in my close circles that I trust and I want to get their thoughts on it. You know, that definitely includes you. It definitely includes family members. It includes uh, friends in real life and online, just people I respect, you know. Uh, and then when I get closer to the finish line, I like to throw a bigger net. So I'd like to get, I think for Indie Game Sim, it's fair to say we had maybe 50 people who were playing and either giving me feedback or not, but playing. And uh, that went pretty well. And I think that that's, I would shoot for dozens, at least with a small game. Yeah. Dozens of people, everyone. <laughs> dozens. Um, so how much time do you dedicate to a stage development that includes playtesting, right? And, and how much time do you allow for iteration solely based on feedback from those players? I think you do need to give it time. <clears throat> I would shoot for, <clears throat> it depends a lot, but like there needs to be at least to me, like a third of your development should be heavily informed by feedback. Um, I don't know if I'll get the times right, but there was a period of at least two months where I had indie game sim out there and people were playtesting it and shooting me emails like once a week or something with feedback and stuff. And, you know, that game, I wanted to make it in three months, but as it, it always happens, it was six months before I was actually able to ship it after, you know, videos and polish and um, estimate, estimating is hard <laughs> and all that stuff, it. making promo images and getting Steam ready and Steam achievements, like all that stuff, um, six months total. But like, <clears throat> there was at least a period of, I want to say two months where people were actively playtesting it prior to launch. And is so. that with the point where you kind of considered the game like it's done and like launchable aside from whatever feedback? Pretty much. Um, the way I was building Indie Game Sim was like the minimum viable product was there early on. 
You know, like the early versions of the game, all the pieces that are in the game today were there. They just weren't great. You know, there wasn't enough content. The pieces weren't polished. It was way too buggy, stuff like that. But all the pieces were there. And just over time, over the next several months, you know, it was like the three main parts to the game. Those all just solidified and hopefully got a lot better. Nice. So, I mean, some people aren't going to make their games that way. You know, like they're going to have like, oh, you know, here's just here's a game loop or two that you can play and we haven't finished this third game loop yet or whatever. But I think it's really important to get the feedback and the playtesting um, at each new stage in development. I think it's especially important for people in our particular cases, right? Where we don't really have like a QA team. Right. Right. And uh, so like you're kind of relying on your friends and your family and your community members to do the bulk of the testing uh, to make sure you're not releasing crap. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Don't release crap. Yeah. Make, make it better. So uh, when you were running your play tests, um, did you watch people in person or did you just kind of give them a survey? Like, how did you run that? I did all of the above. All I, of the above. Wow. I had friends over and I watched them play in person. And what you do is you give them the game, you shut up, you resist, you do not answer their questions. You certainly don't nudge them. You just take notes. And if, if let's say they're just stuck and not getting it and they're sitting there for like two minutes, just like, it's just a button supposed to click or something. You can nudge them along if you need to, but only just what they need to know to get by, right? And you would take a note in that in that instance, right, and be like, "This failed catastrophically. They they did not see that button or whatever, right?" right. <laughs> so that's the way to run a playtest. You just watch them. You just see what happens. You try to get as honest feedback as you can. You should know with friends, they're gonna lie to you. They are hateful. No, I'm kidding. They're, they're gonna they're gonna be soft. You know they are. They're gonna be like, oh, it's soft. cool. They're, they will, right? Yeah. They'll be friends. Like you're, they're your friends. They they won't want to hurt your feelings. They want to oh, be nice. Yeah, it's super fun. <laughs> Best game I ever played, Matt. <laughs> no, but I mean, just take it with a grain of salt. You know, like more look at it as did the experience let them down, and was the game just buggy and failing everywhere. Right. And if they did like it, you know, just recognize that someone else might like it less because they don't know you, and they don't care about you. Right. And uh, uh, I think that maybe a good thing to watch out for right, is like look at how they respond emotionally and through their actions as opposed to what they say. Actions. Exactly. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Like if, they're, if they don't continue playing, but they're like, great game. But it's a fantastic game. I can play it all day. Yeah. But they don't want to keep playing it. Look at the actions. Don't listen to the words. Like thank them for the words, right? And their time, of course. But like just the honesty is there if you look for it. Right. <laughs> Um, I also did remote. I would hang out with uh, a couple, there were a couple of, uh, what do we call them? Losties? Losties. Members of the Tiger Hut. Uh, secret friends. I don't know what to call uh, you people. But it's you. You one with the ears listening right now. Uh, I listened with some Lost Decade peeps. Or uh, I watched them play. And I just did that. I mean, use whatever works, man. Like, I use Skype. You know, I screen share on Skype. You could use Google Hangouts. You could use, Dis- I think, does, does Discord do video? I know it does audio. We had an audio hangout on Discord not that long ago. Yeah. My point is use whatever works. It doesn't really matter. All you need to do is just watch people um, play your game. If possible, get a video feed in there too so you can see um, their faces and where their eyes are going and maybe even what they're doing with their hands on the gamepad or the keyboard or whatever input your game uses, right? Um, And then just watch. You know, the same thing. Like, don't, don't tell them what's going on. Don't explain anything. Don't nudge them. You know, just respond. Um answer a question here's a good thing when they ask you questions ask them what they think so like for example um what do i do here what do you think you, you do don't exactly that's it exactly right like what is that guy there what do you think that guy is i'm serious you you'll feel like a jerk because it it's like sounds the most like, annoying like, thing ever 
it's like yeah, you're trying to torture your friend. Yeah. That's the only way you're going to learn, though. You're like if you tell them that's a button you click to publish your game, or that that's a monster you have to defeat to move on. That doesn't help anybody. Right. You know, it helps that your friend in that moment, but it, it certainly is not the purpose of your playtest, which is to learn more information about how people are going to be experiencing your game. Right, and it's hard, like. I'm sure to sit there and watch somebody struggle over your game and you're just like, ugh. Like, it is. I just, I really want to tell them what to do because it's like making me feel like a bad developer that they can't figure this thing out or whatever. I recommend a belt, a leather belt. You can put it in your mouth and oh, it can bite onto it. And then also you can, if you get a fork, just like a standard uh, kitchen table fork, you can you can stab it into your leg. Oh, and the, uh, the pain is a release. Wow. That's yeah. fantastic. A little dark. <laughs> a little dark. <laughs> no, it is, it is pretty much agony. I don't really have any advice there other than just um, grin and bear it, my friends. Yes. Just, just take it. shut up. <laughs> shut your mouth and enjoy the feedback. <laughs> so it sounds like you know, it sounds like it's pretty easy to run a playtest. You just don't talk, and whenever they ask you a question, you turn it around with another question. It is, yeah. Uh, usually from a playtest, like on the average one, um, maybe an hour. I'll sit there. I, I don't say much. I have a page or two of notes that range from here's a critical bug I have to fix to here's a random thought they had. And then later you can call that down. You're like, you are the decider if, if you're in charge right. of the project. Like You can be like, that was great feedback and I want to pay attention to that. Or you can be like, that was just a thought before they didn't really get what the game is and, and that suggestion doesn't make sense for this project, that kind of stuff. You know, like you need a good, strong filter. The best thing to look out for when playtesting, though, is like, here's a problem with the bug or uh, the game. Here's a, here's a bug, right? Like, here's something that prevented progress. Here's something that annoyed the player and stopped them from wanting to play. Like those kinds of things. That's what you're looking for, right? Is like right. the critical issues. I just had this weird vision of like you being a psychiatrist type of situation, <laughs> you know? And you're like sitting there writing notes and like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, oh. Like, what, how do you oh. feel about that? What do you think? What do you think this means? <laughs> Do go on. Tell yeah. me more about your childhood. I mean, play another level. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of what it is, honestly. Like you should put your play tester on a couch and you <laughs> sit in the chair and you take notes. That's kind of what's going on. And you let them drive the conversation and you yeah. let, let them discover. Their... And maybe they'll even pay you five hundred dollars an hour, like a real psychiatrist. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't count on it though. We do. We do have a tradition of having people pay us to play test our games, which is. Uh, one of the few things indies can do <laughs> to stay afloat. <laughs> also known as early space. access. Early access. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think the last piece in this last question was uh, surveys, which, yes, I do that as well. And for that, I throw a bigger net. And, if I, for example, you know, Astute Lost Cast listeners will remember, as I was saying when I was testing IGS, is just, you know, shoot me an email. Matt lost at games.com. I did get uh, a lot of responses and I really appreciate that. And I'll tell you this too. Most people who reach out to test your game will not test it and respond to you. Yes. There was something shocking, like maybe, I don't know, 20%, one out of five people who emailed me actually less, actually less than I think about it. Most people, honestly, I don't know. Maybe they just want your game or maybe they played it and like, <laughs> they're like, oh, this is terrible. I can't. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to tell you my thoughts. I'm not going to fill this the survey out because it's so, no. I, also, I don't really know. I think it's probably more just that like, you know, people, they have the intention of doing things a lot of times, right? Like yeah. everybody has this thing where they're like, you know, I intend to do blah, right? I intend yes. to go to the gym. I intend <laughs> to go, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but, you know, when it comes down to brass tacks, sometimes, you know, they just don't feel like they have the time or they really don't have the time or they're not as interested as they thought, you know, it's like, 
it's really easy to say like, oh yeah, I'll test your game. Sure. Like hit me up. It's kind of like, you know, when your coworkers say like, you know, hey, let's go out for drinks on Friday night. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Like I'm down. And then Friday yeah. night comes and you're like, oh no. Your week was rough. It's rainy. <laughs> your stomach hurts. And you're like, I'm tired. Like I'm not going to be good company. Yeah. No, I hear you. I, I mean, it's the same thing because it is. It's playing a game, but it's not just playing a game. It's not just have some fun and play it, which to be honest, that might be what some of the people who reach out really want, right? Like the look, I just want to. I want to check out the game, which that's, that's awesome. That's cool. You know, but then it's like, you know, sometimes just find the time to play a game is enough work in and of itself. This on top of, I don't just want you to play it. I want you to pay close attention to your experience. And I want you to fill out a freaking survey when you're done surveys being the kind of thing that some companies will pay you cold, hard cash to do. And right. But here I am asking thing. you to <laughs> volunteer. Yeah. I'll, I'll pay you with uh, your name and the credits, which like three people see. I've only seen one person in the wild so far beat, Indie game sim, beat on YouTube, beat it, oh. beat the game. Mm. Yeah, so like, and that's the only way that you can see the credits. So the only way you're going to see that uh, the playtester credits is if you beat it. So most people, mo- the vast majority of players won't know you played it, tested it. So it's a, it's a bad value proposition. But I still really appreciate everybody's time. You know. Yes. Um. Something else that um I, that we did that was kind of cool was have people kind of YouTube video themselves while they're oh, playing yeah. the game. Yeah. It's like a. You know, it's kind of like a let's play, but you're doing it for an audience of the developer. Exactly. Um, so we had a couple of Lost Cast listeners that, that did that for Soul Thief, and it was very helpful as well. It was very helpful. Yeah, that's true. Kind of just narrating as you go along, talking to yourself as you play the game. Yeah, and that's that's super uh, helpful. Yeah, a lot of um, yeah, a lot of listeners were doing that where they were like explaining their actions while they're doing them. That's that's great because you know you do lose a little bit. Um, you not being there while they're making the video, you can't um ask them questions about what they're doing, right? Or if you feel you need to, like if, if there's something you want them to experience but they're not getting it, you can do that thing where once in a while you might need to nudge them in a direction just to get more information, you know? So you do lose a little bit of that there, but, uh, you know, the players can make up for that by talking their way through what they're doing. And, like, this kind of thing is helpful too. Like, oh, this screen, okay, so I think I want to go over here, but I don't know what that thing in the corner is. Is that like a, you know... I remember when we were first making Onslaught Arena, we had this reticle on the ground that was a uh, indicated where your weapons were going to fire, right? And it, it looks kind of like a wheel, like this, I don't know, it's just like <laughs> yes. this design I made, right? And someone thought it was a wheel that spun to open the gates. I, I yeah. always remember that because it was so... I was like, what?! How did you get there? That's so bizarre. Because to us, we see it. We, we made it. Right. We know what it is. We see it. It's a target reticle on the ground. And we know that that means when I click the mouse button, I'm going to shoot a sword in that direction, right? People who play your game, they have no context. They have no idea what's going on. So they see the spinning thing on the ground and they're like, oh, hey, there's, a, there's a gate moving. I saw the thing spinning. The spinning thing opened the gate, right? It makes sense. But I never in a million years would my brain have arrived there. Yeah. I mean, this is that disconnect between, you know, having complete knowledge of the game and the game systems and the graphics and everything else versus not right and how important it is to be able to communicate those things to your player i think that you know the biggest problem we had there was that it looked too much like a game element right and not enough Mm. like user interface which is what it was right that's a good point like it it needed to look less like it could exist in the world right yeah Mm, that's a good point dude yeah so I think that when you're playtesting your game, what you need to be receptive to is the fact that you are looking for unknown unknowns. You know that there's going to be some unknowns. You're going to find, oh, hey, I didn't know about that bug. Or, oh, there's a problem that I wasn't aware of, right? Really, though, you, don't, you need to go into it like not knowing what to expect, basically, because you might find something really bizarre. The game could break in ways that just blow your mind, you know? So just be 
prepared for that and be on the lookout for stuff that you might not have any idea of. Yeah. Something that I was thinking when you were talking about, um, like how play testing isn't like playing a game, you know, it's like sort of like work. Um, it reminds me of a podcast we had not that long ago about like kind of playing with purpose, you know, how we were talking about, Oh yeah. Um, you know, how you wanted to play games for research essentially, which is like yes. a very similar way of playing them. Like you're, playing them but you're taking notes and you're like critically thinking about what makes it good or bad right that's work it's it's not play it's a huge difference you know because games are really fun to play and you can just play games all day but this is different this is like studying research right it is work it's kind of like you know that kind of cliche about like game testers right it's like you just play video games all day yes like well Yes like, and think no. <laughs> of think about a food critic, right? Like a food critic's gonna go to a restaurant and be analyzing and taking notes, like looking at everything from the service to like the the dish with there'll be multiple courses and they're gonna have like a drink and they're gonna have a dessert, they're gonna have an appetizer, you know? And that's totally different than I'm gonna go to a restaurant with a bunch of friends, we're gonna get some beers, yeah, whatever chicken wings, who cares? And I got a burger and you got a pizza and we're all trying like it doesn't matter. You don't even think about it, you just get stuffed and then you go home and take a nap or whatever, you know? Right. That's not how like a food critic would work, right? Like they wanna analyze it, they need to have contents to write about they need to understand everything they need to be able to back up what they say in writing because people might you know want them to explain this or that opinion you know it's a different scenario and it needs like you need to have a different hat on you know when you're playing in one context versus another yeah interesting stuff i've been doing this thing uh where i'm habit tracking i picked this up from my wife because she's a organized adult who has her stuff together she's uh so the complete opposite of you <laughs> I mostly have my <clears throat> stuff together. Mm-hmm. So a uh, habit tracking, you do stuff like, okay, I want to read every day. I want to exercise every day. I want to uh, learn Spanish. I want to train my dog. Like all the things you, that you never get done because you don't have enough time in life, right? Uh, so it reveals to me which things I actually keep up on and which things I don't, which is great, right? Because normally, I don't know. I'm like, we're all our worst, um, what is that? Critics. Like, we're our worst critics, yeah, but we also, like, we don't have any ideas, right? Like, we might think, like, oh, no, I, I have a really healthy diet. And then you actually analyze it, and you're like, no, I don't. Yes. I ate mostly fried chicken all day. <laughs> um, so you don't know until you, until you measure it. So what I found out is that I keep up with most of this stuff, but not playing new games. Uh, in the last week, I've played one new game. And we've got Steam Keys from you uh, very generous listeners. Um, we've got their own games that we buy sometimes that we want to play. This happens to me is I'll like once in a while, I'll check Humble Bundle and I'm like, ooh, five bucks. I, I, I happen to have five bucks right now. And here's like six new games I was wanting to check out. I got to keep up with that. You know, the only way it's going to happen is if I make that a habit where like every day I try a new game and I treat it like work, you know? Yeah, I think it's hard, right? Like, um to get into a new game in some ways, right? Like, I guess, I wonder if that's part of the reason why we see so much nostalgia uh, around gaming in general, right? And, and gamers that kind of stick with the same game for long periods of time. Like, um, I think WoW is a good example, right? Like, uh, there have been times where I wanted to play, like, a different MMO, perhaps, you know? Because I was like, I'm tired. I'm tired of playing WoW. Like, I want to play a different one. You can't do that. It can't. You literally cannot. <laughs> no. No, I mean, some people can, but, um, you know, but it, it's... It's a very different experience, right? When you're like, oh, I have to learn all these new systems and like this thing is similar, but not the same. And like, what's this do and blah, 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 you know? Yeah. There's a lot of comfort in coming back to systems that you understand, you know, like coming back to play Splunky. Like you can just pick up Splunky and play it. You can pick up Hots and play it, um, mm. right? 
Whereas sounds good. I could go for either right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Let's do it. I could go for some hots and a burger. But when it comes to a new game, right? Um, new stuff to learn. Progress is slow. A lot of times, here's a story or a world long ago. And I'm like, oh, come on, you know, just all that stuff. Or like, <clears throat> a lot of times recently, uh, just too many mechanics introduced too fast. That's a big turnoff to me, and it, it's, it's exhausting. And I don't like it, and it really does. It makes me want to retreat because I'm like, oh, I, I'm not getting this. I must be bad at games. Like, <laughs> I want to fall back to like, I want to go play some Splunky and, and get the hell or something. You know, like show that. See, I know how to do this. I'm not sucky at all games. Just this new one. Yeah, yeah, it turns me into a whiner. <laughs> anyway, I got to work on that habit. I was doing good for a while. I think um, what I did was I created this little form for myself. So I basically felt like a survey. I'll play a game. I'll pay close attention to it. Uh, I literally had to do this. This is how I got myself to be drawing more um, early on. I probably talked about this like, I don't know, probably two years ago at this point. I would set a timer sometimes. Be like, look, here's a timer for 30 minutes or 60 minutes, right? And I'm like, I'm not stopping drawing until that timer goes off. And I had to do the same thing with myself with games, right? Because if it's like, oh, cool, I've got an hour until I got this other, you know, responsibility or whatever. Um I can play a game of Hots or two because it feels good and it's fun, right? And I can demonstrate some mastery and I, and I, I am in a comfortable place. I know what to do versus, you know, playing a brand new game and you're like, I don't know, is it cool? Like, is it going to make me feel dumb? Is, is it, is it neat? Is it going to waste my time? Is it going to crash my computer? It's, it's like a new relationship. You got to be on board for that. Yeah. Hey, all kinds of new relationships crash your computer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's true. That's true. Anyways, uh, that's all good stuff. Yeah. Um, so big thanks to Andre for the great questions. As always, there's another one queued up uh, about discounting games and AAA games. Uh, also, uh, shout out for Andre and his game on Steam called Shadows Peak. That's another game I need to play because Andre was very generous, gave us some Steam keys. You want a Steam key? Yes, sir. We have several. You want who, one? Who, me? You, Jeff. Um, yeah. Okay, great. Absolutely. In that case, we have two that we're going to put. Xandri um, is very generous, gave us a, a handful of keys. We got two we're going to give to our patrons. So look for that posting on Patreon later today, probably after the podcast. Uh, so very cool. Check out Shadow's Peak. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, and then we have another question in the future. And then let's see what else down the line. Yeah, more stuff. Um, I want to talk at some point about, um, I want to analyze your game loops. I want to analyze like what you do with in, uh, in WoW or HOTS. And I also want to talk about top-down versus bottom-up game design. I'm excited about that one. Yeah, ooh, yeah, that's gonna be a good. Talk topic. all day about bottom-up. Bottom-up's fun. Top-down is is smart. Uh, and somewhere in the middle is like game design bliss. <laughs> sweet, let's, sweet game design bliss. <laughs> let's talk that up. Uh, yeah, that's all we got. Thanks for listening. Check us out on Patreon. Buy our games. <laughs> uh, and that's it, I guess. Except for shipping it.
You know, we're supposed to be doing uh, vocal warm-ups and stuff, too. I saw that TED Talk recently. Who says that? Uh, I don't know. Some... <laughs> Was it Ted? 